This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Probably my favorite economist in the world, Catherine Austin Fitz. Thank you for joining me in the trenches. Hi, Jeremy. It's always a delight. I will tell you that all the economists I know would laugh if they heard me described as an economist. <laughs> well, how, how would you be described as? I'm an investment banker and an investment advisor. So, you know, so, so when, you're, when your business is investment and the risk of investment, you're, of course, always looking at the economy. But an economist is someone who has a PhD and does very serious statistical <laughs> analysis. And, uh, you know, and I've been warring with most of them until Dr. Mark Skidmore showed up. <laughs> and, and, you know, because they, they were deeply steeped in government statistics and government accounting. Anyway, you know, and, and I learned what I've learned about economy. I learned by driving around and talking to people and, and mapping out financial ecosystems by place. So by looking, doing deep, not statistical, but deep looks at how money behaves with real people and living systems in places, you know, in in environments. That's how I learned about the economy, which has nothing to do with economics. I had economics when I went to Wharton. It was great, but, you know, it's not about reality. You know, it leaves out the covert side, which now is more than 50% of the economy. (laughs) No, for sure. Uh I, I think you're right, though. I mean, economics is more about the human interaction than it is about numbers. Yeah, it's about living systems, how living systems behave and how we can optimize the health and well-being of living systems. You're in the Netherlands. How is the Netherlands right now? Well, today it's very gray. You know, it gets that way in the winter in the Netherlands because we're right on the North Sea. But, you know, I'm in a lovely sailing community with fantastic people and working, you know, my partner lives here, which is how I found my way to Stavorn in the Netherlands. And so, you know, I would say everybody in the Netherlands is struggling with the same things we're struggling with globally. But, um, you know, I find the Dutch culture to be very practical, very grounded, you know, and, and I would say it's remarkable how few people here over the last year and a half have lived in fear. They, they simply, um, you know, if you look at the history of the Dutch, the Dutch are people who've for many generations dealt with real serious trouble. <laughs> so, well, I mean, I'm so, a result of the, of the Dutch, you know, that's right in South Africa. Very Dutch. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. My question about how is the Netherlands though, was a little, was a bit more, uh, metaphorical. Um, I'm referring to the mandates and the, the protests and what's going on with the, with the uh, authorities? So I see the same thing in the EU that I say, see in America, which is you literally have two tsunamis going at each other like a great game of chicken. And what I'm seeing, I just looked at a poll, and forgive me, this is the US, not the EU, but I think it, it represents, you know, you have a broad section of the working people who are sick of the lies. And, you know, they're sick of the game, they're sick of the lies, they're out of patience. And so I see a refusal to comply skyrocketing. And um, I see it in the EU, I see it in America, I see it all over the world. So uh, now the EU is definitely ahead of the US and moving for mandates. If you look at what's happened, Jeremy, just in the last two weeks, the judicial system has absolutely torn up the mandates in the United States absolutely torn up and torn up in a way that is complicated and not easy for the Supreme Court or any one court to overrule. So, you know, you're really bogged down in the mud, the twigs in the U.S. And um, now you don't have, you don't see yet that kind of judicial support in the EU. Um, But I think as more and more people realize this has nothing to do with health and everything into creating literally a digital concentration camp, you know, that's what we're doing. We're creating, we're turning the whole world into a concentration camp through digital means. It's sort of free range slavery. And, you know, it's, it's, you know so many people in America are always worried they're going to round you up and put you in FEMA camps. Said, Wait a minute. <laughs> but isn't, 
is it actually possible to stop? So, yeah, it's absolutely possible to stop. And it's absolutely possible to stop because if you, you know, it, it's back to the British poet, ye are many, they are few. Now, if you stop your noncompliance, it's going to get very violent, very forceful. Many people are going to die, but a lot less people are going to die than if you don't stop it. So, you know, and I keep saying, and I'll say it again, death is not the worst thing that can happen. Many, many people in the Western world have never experienced slavery. You don't want to experience what's coming. What What is coming? So, so this is an effort for complete central control of your body, of your life, of your behavior, of your mind, everything. You know, my concern when the vaccine, if the vaccine passports are allowed to go into effect, you know, that means if you don't do what you're told, they can cut off all your money and cut off your ability to, to travel or transact. And, you know, when you say, uh, when I say, if you don't do what you're told, if they decide that you need to turn your children over to them, you know, there you go. You're talking about putting into a, a, a system where if they decide they want to walk off with your kids, they can and will. You can't, you can't let that happen. You can't let a system go into place where there's absolutely, you have absolutely no rights and no, there's no law that protects you. And so many people in the Western world have lived in a system where we have rights and we have law. They can't conceive of what this could become. You're talking about literally taking individuals and moving them out of the space of sovereign individuals under divine authority into a space of livestock that can and use be harvested in a variety of ways. And what we're watching around the globe, and we can get into the specifics of mm where the evidence is, but what we're watching is we're watching a genocide. If you, if you allow, you know, I keep saying this for the last 20 years, crime that pays is crime that stays. If, if we allow a genocide to roll out and proceed at the, you know, there's for my entire life, I've watched genocide and it's become larger and larger and larger, and now it's blossomed full blown. If we allow this, you're talking about secret people being free to mandate that you put secret ingredients, including nanoparticles covered in steel in your body, you know, for secret agendas. And if you just look at what we know about this stuff, um, you know, this is genocide. You can't comply. If you comply, you're a co-conspirator. But you'll be happy. You'll owe nothing. That's that's right. that's the mantra. The guy who just killed your friends or killed your family is telling you you'll be happy. That's a meaningless piece of data. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it's just a meaningless piece of data. You, you've this jumped. Is... I was going to say now you've jumped. You've jumped a whole. You've skipped a whole bunch of my questions. Uh, but <laughs> but okay, that's fine. Let's let's keep going. Well, the important question is: What are we going to? What's the action? What are we going to do about it? And and you know we can debate the details in and around the lies, but we all know they're lies, and we all know that um, you know if you look at the phenomena called COVID nineteen. Whatever it's doing, it's a lot less dangerous. And I would say it's a complex phenomenon. It's not just one thing. But but it's killing a lot less people than the restrictions, the economic restrictions. And it's killing a lot less people than the injections and the secret ingredients, whatever they are. So, so you know, we know we're watching a death march. And the question is, well, what do we do about it? You've got a Rockefeller connection in your background. Let's quickly talk about your Wall Street uh, background no, I have, I have multiple Rockefeller connections, <laughs> and and I keep I keep getting sent these memes of uh, of, uh -huh. of you with Rockefeller connections. So let's just let's just get this out of the way. Okay, so so let's go back in family history because my family was deeply part of the Rockefeller umbrella, you know, which is a very big umbrella because it was a major 
economic and and social force. But um, my grandfather was the dean of the Wharton School and ended up as dean of social sciences at the Rockefeller Foundation. And it's very interesting because um, if you read the history, he was fired. He was pushed out by the Dulles brothers because he kept promoting decentralization. <laughs> it's an old family tradition. And and one of the things I remember is how badly he hurt, he felt by it, you know. Um, anyway, so so he was Dean and he was very proud. I remember growing up at the dinner table and him thinking that the Rockefeller engineered green revolution was a wonderful thing and saved millions of lives. And the funniest one, talk about conspiracy theory. I don't know if you've ever read the report from Iron Mountain. Our family farm was called Iron Mountain. And it was at the, it's the highest inhabited farm in the White Mountains. It's been owned by my family for many generations. And when my father, when my grandfather worked for the Rockefeller Foundation so they could reach him during the summer, they paid to have the local utility roll up a telephone wire so they could reach him. Now it was a, it was interesting because the phone was on a, um, I don't know if you remember the old timey phones when you shared the line. Yes. So it was like an open line and a party line. And if you were using it, the other people could hear, et cetera. And, um, you know, and you had to kind of fight to get on the space. But anyway, the Rockefeller Foundation did pay for the phone wire to be cabled up to the farm. And, you know, at that time, we didn't even have a bathroom. It was all outhouses. It was a beautiful farm, but it was clearly, you know, rustic. And, um, and anyway, so so my sister uh, became sort of when she went to college at Swarthmore, became a bit of an activist. And she kept demanding to know whether the Iron Mountain and the report to Iron Mountain uh, referred to our farm, which there's an argument that it didn't. It referred to something else. But my grandfather insisted that the report from Iron Mountain was not uh, a reflection of, of our farm. Anyway, but it started with my grandfather. And then when my father married my mother, uh, so my, my, the grandfather worked at the Rockefeller Foundation, was my maternal uh, grandfather. So my mother worked at the Federal Reserve. It's all part of the Federal Reserve Rockefeller conspiracy. So she worked at the Federal Reserve. And then when my, my father got home from the war, uh, she, uh, you know, she resigned and had kids. So, um, but my father, if you look at his resume, which is up online on my website, uh, then became a Rockefeller scholar somehow when he went back to the University of Pennsylvania. And, um, and so that's on his resume. And I used to go uh, you know, my, my grandfather used to live in Armonk uh, during the period when he was associated with the Rockefeller Foundation. So I used to go up there anyway. But so the so the families, um, my my uh, maternal uncle married uh, Stokes from New Jersey and the Stokes fortune came from association with the uh, sort of within the Rockefeller syndicate. And interestingly enough, when I was litigating with the federal government, it was my grandfather, it was my maternal uncle who said, you know, she helped everybody, so I'm going to help her. And he he literally kept me alive by helping to hire attorneys and, and he would step sure. in, he bought all my antiques. And so I used to say it was Rockefeller money on both sides of the fight. <laughs> <laughs> no, and he, he, he was one of the forces that saved my life. So this is, you know, and you'll see this, you'll see internecine warfare break out within the, you know, the different syndicates. I liken it a little bit to a swimming pool where the water, you know, if you pour dye, red dye into a swimming pool, eventually it, it doesn't take long for it to spread everywhere. And if you look at how the ecosystem of corruption works, you know, it threads through all our lives. Mm. My favorite one was when I was trying to find people to help me when I first started the, you know, the real food fight with the feds. I sent my resume to one guy who had experience in the intelligence agencies on the covert side. And, you know, he had left because of the corruption. And he, he, he said, you know, I'm reading your resume and you're like my worst nightmare enemy. <laughs> <laughs> And it was funny because one of the one of the tactics they used on me, which was unbelievably effective, is is when they take somebody like me who's an insider, and I don't mean to overestimate my importance because I was, you know, one guy used to call me an Illuminati gopher. So, I, you know, in their world, I was low down. But anyway, but you take somebody like me who's who's got all these establishment credentials, you throw them out and say, okay, you can kill her. 
And then what happens is the general population takes their anger towards the establishment out on this person who's been over, over, you know, thrown over. And it makes it harder and harder for insiders to do the right thing because they know there's no, you know, if you, if you look at the general population, there's going to be no sympathy or love for them there. Anyway, so you have, you have to kind yeah. of go through this brutal existence where everybody's trying to kill you on both sides. It's kind of, you know, it's like the, what is it? The McCoy and the, the two families are shooting each other yeah. and you're in the middle and, and they can both satisfy their appetite that day by shooting you. So everybody's shooting at you. Anyway. And then you, you worked on Wall Street and you also worked with the Bush, the Bush senior administration. So you were, you were definitely part of the establishment. When, when did you start questioning the establishment itself? You know, I started questioning the establishment pretty early on because I didn't like many of the things they were doing. Um, and, and I tried to argue, it never occurred to me for decades that you could, that you could buck city hall. You know, it was thought to be impossible to survive in the wilderness. And I kept trying to encourage them to try things that were more inclusive, more open, more supportive of whether it's markets or democratic process. And I really thought I had their permission to prototype place-based economics and changing the economic model. And I thought I was doing it for them. And I thought there was a possibility of persuading them to, you know, we all knew we were going to have to do a reset. And the question was how, what, where, why? And I truly believe that you could come up with a system where you could depend on much more bottom-up responsibility and you didn't have to convert to basically total control. And I thought I, I had their permission to prototype it. And when the litigation started, I was stunned to discover that they'd just thrown me overboard and, and weren't going to keep their commitments. And I didn't have a, you know, I didn't have a deal. I thought I had a deal, but it didn't occur to me that I could survive outside. And when, when I realized what they were doing in terms of the genocide, that's when I said, you know something, I'd rather die trying in the wilderness than go along. Cause I just, one, I think they're going to fail. It was a much more ruthless assessment of their chances mm -hmm. than I just thought they were making terrible mistakes and it wasn't, their plan wasn't going to work. And, and even if it was, I didn't want to be associated with it. So I, I, that's when I said, you know, I'll die trying in the wilderness. And frankly, when I said that, I thought my chances of survival were very small. But you know, survive kinda, you have. Well, I, you know, I, I survive I have, but it took many different miracles and many, many people helping me. I cannot stress, I cannot, you know, you just have no idea how many people helped who didn't have to and who, you know, that the, the powerful thing about what happened to me was I discovered the power of the law. And when I say the power of the law, I mean lawyers and judges who really believe in the law and want to practice the law and millions and millions of Americans and people around the globe who believe in the law and want, you know, we have a covenant and the constitution is a covenant and the rule of law is a covenant and we share that covenant and it's unbelievably powerful, you know, and it's unbelievably powerful without the government and without even the courts. Um, and, and it was that covenant that I plugged into and so many people helped me. And if it hadn't been for that, you know, I wouldn't have made it. And, and what I discovered is it's really funny. What comes or what goes around comes around. So I was, um, I dealt with several situations in the Bush administration where they tried to get me to help frame and jam people wrongly, and I refused to do it. And then, you know, they tried again and again to, to create false frames and false al allegations mm -hmm. and jam us on it. And we had government officials who stood up and very bravely said no. And it was such a perfect, like the, the wheel of karma was so perfect. It was astonishing. And so don't think that righteousness doesn't give you power. It does. You know, what you put out there does come around. Integrity. You know, I've often told it's it, but there's something happening in the field and it's, um, 
You know, I had an ally who used to always talk about uh, the magic that comes during dangerous times. And that's when the field kicks in and starts going to work for us. And it's, it's there and it's real and you can mm. count on it. And what's happened to me is the more I've experienced it, the more I count on it. And <laughs> literally, I literally used to turn to the sky at certain times during the litigation and saying, okay, boys, I'm ready for the miracle. <laughs> but the miracle would come. Catherine, who runs the establishment? Well, that's the question, and I don't know. I just, I don't know if you listen to it. I just did a two-hour with Dr. Farrell and who is Mr. Global, and I went through every theory no, I didn't that I've to. ever heard. Oh, you should, you should definitely listen to that one. But it was two hours, and my reticence of talking about it on a one-hour podcast is yeah. if, you, if you look at all the different theories, um, you know, I could argue for all of them, and I honestly, you know, to me, if I say, here's who Mr. Global is and more as important here, are the risks he's managing and what he's worried about. Um, uh, you know, I would have to be able to walk into a court of law and prove that. And I can't, I can tell you what I've experienced. And on any given day, you know, I can, I can handicap the pros and cons of this theory versus that. But one of the things I will say is it's a lot harder to run this planet than you think. Um, and I'm convinced that there's a significant amount of money that is being harvested out of the financial system every year. And the people running the system have to produce that dividend, whether they like it or not. And that's part of what's created this problem. The central bank. Yeah. The other thing I will tell you is absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And in my personal experience, you know, I grew up in a very poor neighborhood and I saw a lot of organized crime. And and what I will tell you is, you know, the organized crime has been growing for my entire life. And most people have been going along as long as they got a percentage of the action, you know. So, so you know, tough love here. We're all more guilty. And I saw a lot of you know, very prominent members of the establishment fight for the right thing and get overruled because the crowd would support the criminals. So, you know, the, this corruption is is deep and wide. Is the current fiat monetary system organized crime? Fiat money doesn't have to be organized crime, but the current fiat money, this, this, the current central banking warfare model is absolutely organized crime. And it's being run that way. And, and it's, it's to the point where the people in it, you know, would struggle to make it any other way because you've got, you know, think of a huge ballroom, thousand, a thousand people in a huge ballroom and they're all doing the waltz. If you suddenly start playing the tango, you've got a mess. So, so taking a living ecosystem and resetting it is a very big complex task, which is why they're using shock doctrine kind of treatments to do it. Now they're doing the one, the unfortunate thing is if, if you look at how I would do the reset, we would end up with a meritocracy. <laughs> and the problem is if you look at the current people who control, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're unlikely to end up emerging as in control. You know, now I believe a meritocracy would work better, but they can argue, you know, getting from here to there takes unfathomable risks and will mess up what they're dealing with. Part of the problem is what they're managing. They absolutely believe that they need secrecy and the decisions to keep whatever we're keeping secret from 47 on with the National Security Act and the creation of the national security infrastructure, you know, as a result, more and more and more of our world and economy have grown secret. We've developed literally parallel, separate civilizations from those budgets. And now we have grown so far apart in terms of our maps of the world, our understanding of the world and our behavior. You know, how do you get back? How, how do you get back into alignment I don't know any way to do it other than bring the secrecy down, which is why I do what I do. When you talk about the secrecy, though, um, what do you mean? Is it at a covert elite level? 
Well, it's it threads across the whole society. So we started to create um, with the 47 and 49 Act a very significant covert budget. And it, you know, we, we took the people in charge of the intelligence agencies and the covert side of life, and we made them the most powerful bankers in the world. You know, so you basically took, you know, the people with guns who had the ability to kill with impunity and had a monopoly on force and were free to engage in force around the planet. And you, you turned them, you know, you, you integrated them with the Iron Bank and you were off and running. And the first thing that happened, you know, after that was as that covert money and operations grew and grew and grew, um, they started to affect control, you know, change of control, change of governments, global coup d'etats. And then in 63, one, they didn't like the, the model being implemented by the current covert, uh, overt, you know, government. They basically killed the president. And, you know, a couple of years later, they killed his brother. They killed Martin Luther King. They killed, you know, so you you had a wave of assassinations that established that it was the covert side of the house that ran the government and everybody had to do what they say. I mean, Charlie Schumer did us a big, big, you know, favor when at the beginning of the Trump administration, he said on Rachel Maddow, look, the, you know, the president has to do what the CIA says or else they got 50 ways from Sunday to get it. Well, what's that saying? The president works for the CIA. Now, you know, when I say CIA, all sorts of folks from the CIA, you know, retired or current will, no, no, we don't want, you know, because they're working on the coverts. If they're working on the overt side, they don't see the whole picture. Because if you look at what those hidden system of finance plus the back budget, plus now with FASB 56 or funding, you know, it's a huge corporate and banking infrastructure. And it's not, you know, it's not civil service employees. It's big banks and corporations that are running the vast majority of the covert infrastructure. For whom, for whom were the central banks created? Well, that's the question. Who's in control? I mean, if you, if you, you know, I, one of the theories is Captain and Kings that basically says there's 200 people at the top who run the planet. And, and, you know, it's a bunch of people with enormous responsibilities in industry, government, you know, in the various cartels, you know, that's one thing. But if you look at what the phenomena that's going on in this planet, it's much more strange than just Captain and Kings. So we're talking about technology clearly available which is outside the paradigm within which you and I exist, you know? And so the question is, and this is what I go through with Dr. Farrell, who, you know, what are all the theories of who that is and who controls it and who runs it? You know, but, but we're now talking about coexisting on this planet with civilizations, which have far, far more powerful technology than we do and, and are essentially invisible to us and secret to us. You know, whether it's the Bushies building a breakaway civilization, et cetera. Now, it's interesting, you know, one of, uh, did I ever get you to read The Rings of Saturn? I think it sounds familiar, but I don't remember now. So uh, one of the things when I, you know, because I really have dealt with tremendous amounts of financial fraud, particularly in the mortgage, real estate and government securities market. Anyway, so. One of the things I couldn't figure out is how the Bush administration it was really the Bush syndicate. Let's call them Bush syndicate, which is sort of a part of the Rockefeller syndicate in my mind. But how the Bush syndicate just exploded financial fraud in the 80s. It just they exploded it on the real estate and the mortgages. And then they came back in the 90s, both sides, all syndicates and did the same thing. But this time they integrated with the securities markets and derivatives and took it to a you know, to a quantum level. And I, I thought, what what enabled them to do, you know, that level? Because if you look at the, the level of financial fraud they engineered in the 80s, you're talking about going across all the regulators, all the financial institutions. You're talking about getting everybody on board, which is a huge job. And I couldn't figure out what happened at the beginning of 80s that got so many otherwise sensible people galvanized and moving in this direction where they're just taking billions, if not trillions out of the financial system, you know, in a very sloppy, 
aggressive way. Anyway, so um, in when when the Voyager passed Saturn, if you read Rings of Saturn, it's written by one of the Ames engineer uh, uh, engineers at Ames Laboratory. When Voyager went past Saturn, they saw this. They call it the thing in the ring. They saw a what they thought was a huge planet-sized spaceship docked in the rings. The theory was it was getting energy. And I can literally see Bush in that group. You know, Bush was vice president and sort of um, in charge of the national security umbrella. Uh, and, you know, he had been at, at CIA, so he came out of CIA, literally saying, get me as much money as possible. We have to build this. You know, we have to build a scientific, technological, and military force that can deal with this kind of phenomena. And, um, you know, and, and suddenly they were off and running. And when you talk to the, some of the intelligence operatives who did the fraud during the 80s, they would say, you know, we got 25 million and we got away with it. So we said, okay, <laughs> you know, let's go for 50. And wow, we got away with that. Let's go for 100 million. And you could see the thing, the more they got away with, the more it just went out of control. But how is it that they've got away with it? So if you study, you know, I did a 12-part series called Deep State Tactics, and that describes how they got away with it. So if you can spend enough money on covert operations, enough money on media and propaganda, and enough money on mind control technology, and you've got extraordinary surveillance and are willing to do whatever you need to do. You know, there is a social credit system in place, but it's covert. So you have complete surveillance, but then you have the ability operationally to move on any person, carrot and sticks, who you need to herd. Okay. So think of it as a giant herding machine. And most people think that for somebody to do that level of surveillance, you know, you need teams of human beings. No, you've got AI and software. So is the AI and software, because most of this fraud has been done through the systems. If you read my online book, Dylan Reed and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits, there's a great cartoon, and it took me a long time to get the permission to use it and to buy it, but it's a Viking guy with the big, uh, you know, with the big horns coming out of his head and big robes on. You know, he looks like a tough old Viking guy. And he's sitting behind a desk and he's saying, no, now we do all our plunder electronically. <laughs> Anyway, so 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 you know, so so they've spent decades building and operating a, a nuts and bolts carrot and stick control system. You know, my neighbors where I live in the United States, you know, they intuitively understand if they say or do the wrong thing, suddenly the interest rate on their credit card is going to get jacked up, or their credit card is going to be canceled, or they're going to get fired, and it's all very invisible, but they know it's there. And then, and then from all of that, we arrive where we are now. Um, it's a great term that, that I heard you say the other day called plague wars. Um, is it just an extension of this central banking warfare? So I've gone back and tried to understand how plague laws have been used. You know, there's a pattern, and I would love to get some history students working on it. Um, because it looks to me literally like you have a plague, you institute plague laws, you control labor, transportation, capital, then you move the reserve currency. <laughs> then another 100 years, you do it again. And I think this has been going on for centuries. You know, it's certainly been going on essentially since the bubonic plague is what my guess is. Um, but I think plague laws are a very old game to centralize capital when it's needed. And there's definitely a relationship to managing and, and shifting the reserve currency. It's sort of like a, a reset every hundred years. So I would love to see if that theory is true. Um, the thing that is frightening about this one, because, you know, you look at the history and you say, okay, well, you know, if you just survived the Spanish flu a hundred years ago, when they did this the last time they, they jacked up the electricity and rolled out vaccinations. Um, you know, if you just live through it, then you could go back and be fine. So you just need to keep your head down and survive it for five years. 
The difference this time, Jeremy, is now we're talking about implementing digital concentration camps. It's the first time we've gone through one of these plague law cycles where they can come out the other side with complete control forever. And that's why this time it is different. In one sense, it's the same, but this time you must not comply. No one can stop the digital concentration camp from going into place by complying. No one, you know, we've gotten mm. here because we wouldn't say no to organized crime. Correct. Now we have to say no. And and part of the problem, whatever the theory of who Mr. Global is and what, he's, what Mr. Global is doing, the reality is power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. And the message to the establishment my whole life, because I've been in those boardrooms, and what I heard is the crowd will not support the financially responsible solution. Mm. You know, what I've heard is crime pays, you know, stop arguing for, you know, the ethical solution because the crowd won't support it. And the guy who does the unethical is going to make more money and win and beat us. So there's a prisoner's dilemma going on. And, and, and until and unless we exercise our power, because we have that power, we are many, they are few. Until we exercise that power, the people trying to argue for the right thing in the boardrooms will not be supported. If we won't support them, they can't just go out there on their own. I I accidentally misquoted you. I said plague wars, not plague laws. But I, I deliberately previously used the term plague wars uh, because, ah. because uh, it is certainly a war. Um, I'm reminded of the war on terror, for example, and now we have a war on supposed I don't know, pandemics uh, or viruses or something, but or health, a war on health. Uh, but essentially, so I have to, I just have to tell you this for news trends and stories. Every quarter we do this synthesis of all the news. Mm. So uh, this time we're completely, it's always the top 20 stories in different categories. Mm. This time we're not doing the top 20 stories. It's, uh, it's called, uh, it's, it's basically about the war. And it's tyranny versus liberty. And then we go through 20 war fronts. Wow. So it's the top headline, war front by war front. And it's the unanswered questions, war front by war front. But then it's take action. In other words, what are your actions to protect yourself on war front on the media? What are your actions to protect yourself on the war front in education? What do you, because this war between, between centralization and decentralization between the digital control concentration camp and freedom is going on in every front. It's every aspect of our lives. And so you have to be prepared to take action to, to not comply and be effective and protect yourself in each one. So we have 20 fronts, war fronts, and we go through each of them. And so we're going to totally redo it because our only interest is winning the war. <laughs> so, so my use we of, don't want it. so my use of yeah, war we, isn't, isn't uh unfounded this is a war this is a war mm. and that's why it's funny sometimes i'll you know because the problem is i've been in this war for a long long time you know and i've been you know and this war has been going on in my life in every aspect of my life for a long long time because when they come at you they come at you on every aspect i mean there's no aspect that will come at you so 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 it's very important to get over your feelings that it's unfair. <laughs> and, and for two reasons, I'll tell you why. The two mm. reasons is, one is you, no, one ever, no one ever successfully engaged in warfare feeling sorry for themselves. Mm. You know, if you feel sorry for yourself in a war, your chances of dying just increased. So it's a very it's, tough, yeah, it's a tough red pull to swallow. I, you know, I don't know. I'm willing to do a lot to survive. <laughs> anyway, so, so, but, but I, I can understand why you feel badly about it and you're sorry it's happening, but you got to get over that. Right. I mean, you got to get in a state of amusement. I have spent years reading people like Friedrich Hayek and Ludwig von Mises and Thomas Sowell. And I, I suppose I had this, this classical idea of the free market and how the democratic system works and it all seems to have come crashing down with the reality that perhaps it's just an illusion 
Well, in theory, it could work that way, but you need a governance system which is trustworthy. You know, so I can take any theoretical system and if I have a trustworthy governance system, I can make it work. You know, I can make the worst fiat currency system in the world work if you have trustworthy governance that intends for the system to work. Mm -hmm. You know, I can take the perfect ism, take all your isms, take the perfect ism that theoretically ought to work, put it under a corrupt governance system, it's not going to work. I mean, this is so simple. What What is it? You know, if, if you no family can be raised successfully, you know, if the parents are evil people, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's, it's, I, to me, this is so simple. And why everybody's arguing about isms, I don't know. You know something, I'll tell you what the, the hardest part of this revolution is, because I had to go through it. The most important thing I had to do if I was going to survive, because my chances of survival were slim. The most important thing I had to do is I had to look in the mirror and I had to say, I'm the Patsy. And for some reason, that was one of the hardest things I ever had to do. And I find so many people would rather not make it rather than face that. Okay. It's hard. It's painful. So, so I had to look in the mirror and say, you know, I'm the Patsy. So, so you have to, all I can tell you is I have a, uh, I had a wonderful pastor in Washington and it was really spiritual warfare training that, that helped me do this. But one of the things he taught me was if we can face it, God can fix it, but we have to face it. And whatever we have to do to face it, that's the door we walk through to get to the other side, because there are real solutions, but there are, you know, there are hundreds of real solutions, but there are no real solutions if we won't face reality. Is national sovereignty therefore under attack? There is no national sovereignty. Okay. Okay. So when you lever when you lever sovereign governments up with debt and you you have complete invasive surveillance control of their information systems which are run by your banks and corporations and not by government employees and you reserve the right and you have a get out of jail free card you have legal immunity to kill decision makers who don't decide what you want you know, those governments don't have financial sovereignty, they don't have information sovereignty, and they don't have decision sovereignty, so they're not sovereign governments. Now, we're supposed to have sovereign governments, and the question is, can we return them to sovereignty? Because that's one of the ways we return ourselves to individual sovereignty. But right now, the central banks are moving in, you know, now that they've levered them up and gotten information and and decision authority, they're trying to move in and take control. I don't know if you saw this last night, The Economist put out an article saying that Italy was country of the year because it made a central banker the president. I was like, okay, it proves my point. <laughs> oh God, you just gotta love them. Anyway, but uh, so, so we have to take back the sovereignty individually and then for our respective bodies. Mm. And, but part of doing that, because remember you've got 190 plus countries that are all operating under the jurisdiction of satellites, which can deliver, you know, incredible invisible weaponry from the sky. So we're dealing with a, a suborbital platform, which has the power to significantly impact government policy on the ground, whether it's a community or a national government. So I'm not a big believer in letting corporations rule the world. Um, I've been studying the Hanseatic model and I'm very intrigued by it because you had a group of merchants who did, I think, a remarkable job of leadership and management and sort of a, a federation of municipalities dominated by the merchant class in a world where between the fish they were taking out of the North Sea and their ability to trade globally, you know, they could really mm. make the economics go. So there's a lot in the Hanseatic League or in any of the corporate models to, uh, you know, to inform us about, about sort of federations of municipalities operating. 
So I think it's a very instructive model and it's one I've spent a lot of time trying to understand and read. But um, the technology we have is much more powerful than the technology they had. And that's why you, if you're going to, to govern and manage this kind of technology, there needs to be a significant effort to grow up spiritually and and in terms of educational literacy. And if you look at the way we're going, we're going in the opposite direction. There's an effort to, you know, to take a large part of the population and significantly lower their IQ, you know, and move them into idiocracy. But I mean, isn't the principle a good one? Uh, you focus on uh, traditional family values, farming, uh, the, the simpler, the simpler things in life, the stuff that actually is real and perhaps closer to natural order. So, I, you know, it's, I'm a Christian, and so the Hanseatic model is much closer to the one. I'm always laughing because I had a Bible school teacher who, uh, she asked me about the Solari model, and I explained, she said, you're making it much too complicated. It's in Leviticus. It says we have to take care of the land. We have to take care of ourselves. We have to take care of each other. One of the challenges of the model you know, the slavery model that we're facing is they clearly want to destroy the family and denude the sexes of, you know, they want to go to a, you know, babies growing in incubators and nobody has sex or sex is flexible, mm -hmm. you know, and to me, it's, it has nowhere near the power and the divine authority of, you know, a more natural model. So I reject their model. I, it's part of, let me tell you, death is not the worst thing that could happen. You know, the worst thing that's happening is, you know, walking into your granddaughter's living room and seeing your great granddaughter growing in an incubator in the living room. That's mm. the worst thing that could happen. That's worse. Right. But that seems to be almost what all of this seems to be connected to. Okay. So, so I'm going to invite you. We are going to publish on Friday. So Friday the 17th, it should be up by the end of the day, a new uh, interview, which I think is one of the most powerful interviews we've done this year. And it's an interview with our choice for the 2021 Hero of the Year, Wim Hof. And it's about returning us to sovereignty. So you smile. Everybody, when they talk about Wim Hof, they always smile. <laughs> So Wim Hof is a is a, what's called an extreme athlete and entrepreneur who's literally been able to shift the entire scientific and medical model of how the human body works by his work with cold therapy. And it's quite extraordinary. Um, in the interview, we have a, Ulrich Kroniker, who wants our future science section, has adds a 20 minute piece to it that describes um, and, and interview some of the scientists who've had to change their minds. And, you know, and, and this is one guy saying, yeah, we're going to have to change the textbooks because the textbooks apparently are wrong. <laughs> anyway, but in, in one of the experiments, he took a group of people he was trained and he and they were injected. I forget if it's a virus or bacteria, they were injected and they stayed healthy. And then the control group got sick. And he's, he's able to prove that, that the human, um, uh, an individual sovereign human can dramatically improve their immune system and their physical and emotional mental strength by a series of, of methods, which are breathing exercises, consciousness or meditation yeah. and cold therapy. Yeah. And he's able to, you know, and I, what I want to point out about this is these methods, um, they're free. And you can do them anywhere. Uh, yes, you can buy his book and that costs money, but you can also go to his website and online and learn mm. it all for free. You don't have to pay a dime. And anyway, so he's an, he's very much a missionary for helping people come back to their power. And uh, his methods are remarkable and they work. It's a, it's a reminder that while there's a group of people who want to do and implement some pretty creepy things, you know, we can go in another direction and we have the power to do it. I mean, I have to tell you, during the litigation, I had to let go of not only the healthcare insurance system, but I had to let go of the healthcare system. Mm. Was 
it was literally politically not safe for me to go into the healthcare system. And I will tell you, being thrown out of the healthcare system in the United States for 11 years straight saved my life. I can believe that. Right. So is the, you know, one of the best things that ever happened to me. And one of the things I discovered, you know, cause I was one of those people who just, you know, couldn't go a day without the perfect health care insurance and disability. Mm. You know, I was, I was totally in the model. And then when I had to come out, I realized, wait a minute, you know, my ancestors have been on this planet for thousands and thousands and thousands of years without healthcare insurance or even all this expensive healthcare. So, you know, maybe there's another way now. I, I'm the first to love the very best of the modern healthcare system. So, you know, I would roll into the nurse practitioner with, with money I borrowed when I needed antibiotics. So I'm not trying to say there isn't wonderful things about modern medical science, but when a system reaches that level of corruption, you, you got to stay away. Do you think that while people like Klaus Schwab are calling this the Great Reset, do you think there is a parallel Great Awakening happening? Yeah, and it's one of the reasons the Great Reset is happening. <laughs> so, you know, I th I think there's a Great Awakening going on, absolutely. And that's why this is like a two tsunamis. It's a great game of chicken with the two, you know, one group saying, oh, we need more control. And the more control they bring on, the more people decide, you know, maybe I care more about freedom than I care about you know, uh, buying that new barbecue on Black Friday. Well, what we're saying is don't let the system become all digital. You know, we, to me, an ideal financial system is part digital and part physical. And you don't let it become all one or the other. Mm -hmm. You know, digital is fast and easy for many different reasons. An all digital system under a secret governance system that you can't trust is slavery. It's it's highly dangerous. So what we're trying to do is is you've you've got to take it in the other direction and and you've got to keep that physical part if you can. And for those who who you know if the passports go into effect, you know you're going to have to go to an all physical system because you're not going to be allowed in the digital system unless you want to be a slave. So, but there's a complication here because on the one hand you you you. Referring to something that's literally physical, let's say gold or, uh, I don't know, bartering, which is also physical. But these are actual things that can be taken away from you. Yeah, but we, right. Well, here's the thing that, you know, if the governance system is untrustworthy, then the only, and there is no rule of law, the only asset that has any value is what you can protect with a gun. And if you can't protect it with physical force or a gun or a community acting to protect it, that's it. You're toast. You're either a slave or you're dead. I mean, the elephant in the room, though, is something that's decentralized, like some form of cryptocurrency. Is that something that should be avoided? I go back to you don't want all digital. Mm. So, again, the ideal system to me is part digital and part physical. Right. Um, you know, I don't. Crypto is a much more detailed and longer conversation. So right now we have 3 trillion plus in the crypto market. If the if the financial regulators decide to move in on that crypto, you know, the price can go dramatically down or to zero in a week to 4 weeks. It can be that fast. I don't know if you've seen the the um the reforms the Australians are moving forward with. Yeah. So it's a good example of you know, they've been allowing, so if you look at the digital financial system, part of it is unregulated, including crypto, and part of it is regulated. And they've been allowing this part to swim around for free while it prototypes, develops, and they watch it. But the minute they take this trap and they move it over here, which they can do at lightning speed, Jeremy. I mean, one thing I know a lot about is financial regulatory enforcement. If they if they throw that switch and turn the electrical system on within the unregulated part of the digital system, it, it will take your breath away. Now, crypto are very illiquid. So um, if you look at the liquidity, rele re you know, relevant to them or, or in relationship to the market cap, if a lot of people decide to buy, it's going to run up quickly. If a lot of people decide to sell, it's going to run down quickly. 
So this is a highly speculative and illiquid market relative to other assets. And that means if you're going to play in this market, you know, play smart, understand what you're dealing with. So what I tell people is, especially given what the Australians are up to now, you know, get your principal out, play from your winnings. Don't, you know, be prepared to lose 100%. If we get, you know, every time it bubbles up, take some off the table. So you play smart. So play it. The rules you play a speculative market, play it like a speculative market. That's number one. Number two, you know, the idea that you don't have to pay taxes when you get a, a, a taxable swap or a taxable gain, you know, you're dreaming and don't think they won't come after you. So now it depends on where you are and there are all sorts of particulars. But, you know, the, the idea that this is secret or free, you're dreaming, especially when you look at how the money comes in and out. Um, and the third thing is, please, please, please archive all your records offline. Make sure you can prove what you did in crypto and what you didn't do. And one of the reasons I decided in 2017 I wasn't going to touch this stuff, there's many reasons, but one of the reasons was I've spent years and millions of dollars fighting off false allegations. You know, their ability to sort of entrap me on crypto was, you know, I just wasn't willing to spend the time and money to make sure they couldn't. But you want to make sure you have impeccable offline records of what you've done mm. so that you can you can document and and whatever. Um, and then the final thing is you want to be prepared if you're keeping your money in a wallet. If they require all the exchanges to get licensed and be subject to know, know your customer rules, you're going to have to go in, you know, or donate or do something, but just understand what's coming. And that's why I say, you know, get your principal out, take money off the table now while you can. So anyway, so, but, but remember, uh, you know, look at the Iceland le lesson. They just turned off the utilities to more crypto mining, you know, because mm. they're, 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 you know, they're protecting the energy supply for other things. So. You know, we're going to be in scenarios where whether they turn off the cable or they turn off the energy, crypto can get hiccuped, like any digital asset. So it's not just crypto, it's any digital asset. And that's why I say you want to be able to operate physical and you want to be able to operate digitally, ideally both. But we have to recognize the digital space, you know, is operating wholly on whether it's cables or satellites controlled by the guy who's trying to kill us. In front of you, Catherine, there's a crystal ball. What do you see? Questions. <laughs> no, I think we're living, you know, all my life I've been living with unprecedented amounts of uncertainty, but I've never lived with a level of uncertainty. And one of the things I find you know, I'm big on scenario planning, which has developed a bad name for many reasons, but one of which the Rockefeller simulations was using scenario planning taught by the guy who taught me scenario planning, who I think is totally evil, but he's good at scenario planning. Anyway, uh, no, no, it's true. It's true. I've had a, I had a terrible run in with him. I mean, uh, and, and I'm delighted to tell that story if it'll help. Dig, dig up the dirt and refresh the journal on the Rockefeller syndicate. But anyway, put that aside. You know, I get constant questions from my subscribers. I do a session called Ask Catherine every week. And, and what people want are certainty. And the reality is that's not our world anymore. You can't have certainty. We, you know, this is rock and roll time. I used to be one of those people. I had a 10-year plan, a five-year plan, a one-year plan. My nails were perfect. You know, I went through a period during the litigation. If I had a plan for the next five minutes, I was lucky. Okay. So, so, you know, but I, I would have a one day plan or a one week plan or, you know, it was everything because everything changed. So um, you have to be prepared to envision your hopes for the long term and you have to discipline according to what you want to accomplish most in the long term but you have to be able to rock and roll moment to moment because this is war and we're dealing with the fog of war and the uncertainty of war and anything can happen and you have to be prepared for that it's a faith walk yes yes you know so 
So that's why I, you know, I, I studied spiritual warfare during the litigation and I got to the point where I realized, uh, you know, this is all a spiritual quest and you have to look at it that way. I had a great moment because, you know, Jeremy, I, I was, I, I used to, I was a planning fool. You know, when you come out of the establishment, they all plan. So the first day after my company was destroyed and everything was destroyed, I woke up and I said, well, what are my goals? What's my plan? <laughs> I, I, I was like, I don't have, I don't have written goals. And um, so I tried writing down goals and, you know, cause I, I just tried and it, you know, I wrote them down and I was like, no, that's not it. And so I, you know, I just went on week after week where I, you know, I'd read Wayne Dyer and try and come up with my goals and I couldn't do it. And so I went to church one day and the pastor was all worked up. It was the co-pastor. And she said, she was shaking her finger and she was looking right, you know, in, at the quadrant where I was sitting. And she said, you don't need a man. You don't need a car. You don't need a house. You need to get right relationship with the Lord. And my head exploded and I said, that's my plan. <laughs> that's how I navigate because I don't control, I have no control, but I can navigate, you know, I can swim in the water like a fish. And I said, okay, that's my plan. My plan is to stay in right relationship with the Lord today and every day. Catherine, you really are an inspiration. Uh, you know, I have to tell you, it doesn't feel that way. <laughs> It feels like you're just trying not to drown day to day to day. Anyway, but uh, I, I will say this, you know something? Anybody can adapt to the most, to, to playing to win at the warfare we're in. And the one piece of advice I would give you is you, if you go to Solari and put in a, a, a term called uh, Turtle Forth, you'll pull up an article I wrote called Turtle Forth. There are a few rules you have to follow. One is uh, you can never quit. You just have to refuse to quit. It's absolutely imperative. The second thing is you have to stand. You just have to say no, even if it's hopeless, because when you have no chance and there's nothing you can do, but you still say no anyway, when you say no, it's, it's coded into the software. Suddenly a window will open that wasn't there before because you said no. It's like, okay, we couldn't corner her. Let's open the window. So, but the third thing you have to do, no matter how horrible it is, no matter how many people are dying around you, you have to hold your state of amusement, <laughs> which you can do. Um, you can do. And the final thing is love is the answer. Okay. And it's really easy when you're dealing with evil and you're trying to be effective dealing with evil to lose your love. And you can't do that because love is the source of our power so faith hope and love you must preserve those at all costs uh where can people follow you obviously Solari so reports. my website is solari.com we're a subscription service but there's a ton of stuff all the special reports are public whenever we do anything important from a policy standpoint the book reviews a lot of the articles are public and we sponsor you know, we're a big believer in uh, collaborating with new media. So we sponsor mm. a lot of other people writing and producing things and they publish them on the worst website and we, we publish them too. So there's a ton of material and I'm a great believer. Whatever I have to teach is available for free. You know, so I do a lot mm. of interviews. And then if you want to dig deeper, you know, come on in and, and subscribe if you want to. But whatever you do, you must watch the Wim Hof interview that we published today. It's public. It's fantastic. And I, one of the reasons we chose Wim Hof for the Hero of the Year is I think, Jeremy, I don't know of any body of work that can do more to help our audience and your audience succeed in 2022. We have the power. If you come into Wim Hof's uh, website, the, his tagline is, you're stronger than you think you are. And you are. You know, the one of the most powerful uh, weapons against us is trying to persuade us. First, that it's hopeless. That's what Rappaport always says. Hopelessness is an op and it's planet wide. But the other is to make you think like a victim. And if you fall, if you fall into that trap of I'm a victim, I feel sorry for myself, blah, 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 blah. You know, that's half the battle they've won. 
So you are stronger than you think you are. And uh, I don't know anybody better than Wim Hof to really significantly and quickly uh, improve your ability to function and serve your purpose in this environment. So absolutely plug in and, and check them out. That's a great interview. Catherine Austin Fitz, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you for joining me in the trenches. And when you're at Solari, check out the great cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> right? I, uh, I, I, I shan't argue. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you have a wonderful day, Jeremy. Thanks again for the opportunity to be on Germ Warfare. It's a great pleasure. Catherine, don't go anywhere. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare. Battle of Arms. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.